Well, like David, I want to appreciate you for making it out in the bad weather. It um, turned out not to be as bad as you probably thought it was going to be. At least that was my experience. But something psychologically about hearing little ice pellets hit your window at night caused you to think, I don't want to go out in that in the morning. Um, but thanks for making the effort to be here. I really do appreciate it. We're nearing the end of our sermon series through the Gospel of Mark. We've been in it for quite some time, and we only have a few weeks left. Last week, Dave was in Mark chapter 15 preaching about the crucifixion of Christ. As we thought about how important Mark 15 is and how central the crucifixion is to our faith and our life and everything in this world, we thought, let's come back and look at Mark 15 again. Now, Dave preached, I thought, an excellent sermon last week. If I were you, I'd download it, I'd listen to it on my computer, I'd get a CD, however it's best for you. But I'd for sure get that because we're not at all going to, to go over ground that was covered last week. Instead, we will have a new, we'll head a new direction. And what we're going to start with is one sentence in one verse in Mark 15, a very, very short sentence, but one that I think is incredibly powerful and packed with meaning. Mark chapter 15, verse 24, this one sentence, and they crucified him. That, that's it. That's all the explanation about that crucifixion. And they crucified him. Mark's description of the crucifixion is not what we'd expect there's no description of the physical suffering that Jesus went through. As I read it, I find myself expecting more. Don't you? Almost kind of wanting more. Asking why the brevity? Why, why no details about Christ's physical suffering? Why no detailed description of what took place on that cross? One reason, one reason is that Mark's audience was very familiar with the crucifixion. And so there was no need for detailed description of the suffering involved on the cross because they had already seen it. They knew it. They lived with it. They'd seen it up close and personal. They had walked by criminals who were being crucified. But that's not how it is with us. We're not familiar with it. It's not part of our experience. We've read about it. We've heard a little bit about it. But it's nothing that we've had first-hand interaction with. The crucifixion is hard to capture, impossible to sanitize. What the Romans started calling the crucifixion actually was developed, invented, you might say, all the way back in the 6th century by the Assyrians. They developed a way of killing people, that did more than just end a person's life. I mean, killing someone's easy. But they wanted something that would strike fear and horror and respect and obedience into their people. And that's exactly what crucifixion did. The graphic side of crucifixion caused fear and horror in everyone who came into contact with it. See, the Assyrians found that to be very valuable and far more helpful in controlling their kingdom than just punishing a person. Because crucifying someone involved mutilating them and humiliating them in a way in which everyone noticed. 
Everyone was shocked by crucifixion. Everyone was shaped by it. Everyone was transformed by the power of the cross. So if you had lived in the ancient world, then it would have been very common for you to see probably scores of people crucified. You would have heard them die. You would have seen their agony. You would have watched their bodies decompose as you walked that path to the market every day. You would have, you would have seen the sign that hung around their neck that said that this is the crime that they committed. That sign was intended to tell you what activities you'd want to avoid and also tell you who was in charge. See, on a crucifix, the executed person would hang for days until their organs failed and their bodies succumbed to shock. With arms extended, they were forced to sit upon a little peg called the sedile. And the peg was put there in order to keep them from dying too quickly. It was put there to prolong the suffering. See, what a person would die from was asphyxiation. When no longer able to pull themselves up, they couldn't breathe. In order to make it gorier, therefore have a larger and more profound impact, they would flog and scourge a person before they were crucified. Then they would take them out and tie their hands or nail their hands to the cross. They would be left out in the sun for their bodies to bake until finally they would just rot and fall off the cross after several weeks. Because of the power of crucifixion, Alexander the Great brought it into the Mediterranean about the 4th century B.C., the Phoenicians introduced the Romans to it about a hundred years later. And people believe that part of the reason the Roman Empire uh, expanded so quickly is because Rome perfected the ability to crucify people. Josephus, the first century historian, the historian writing about the time the New Testament events took place, said that Herod the Great crucified 2,000 men in order to prevent an uprising. In 70 A.D., when there was another uprising in Jerusalem and the Roman emperor came to put it down, they crucified so many people that historians say there wasn't enough wood around to crucify even one more person. By the time of Jesus' life and death, Rome had crucified about 30,000, about 30,000 criminals traitors, insurrectionists, whoever disagreed with them. 30,000 were crucified just in the Judean area alone. Death by crucifixion was one of the cruelest and most degrading forms of execution a person could ever conceive of. Even the pagans thought it was perverse. And Josephus called crucifixion the most wretched way to die. So Mark was able to say, and they crucified him, and that's it, because the people reading it, they already understood what it meant. In fact, many of them, perhaps all of them, had grown accustomed to it. I hope that hasn't happened to us. I hope that we have not heard about the crucifixion of Christ for so many years and so often that we are no longer sensitive 
to what it meant to be crucified. That somehow we've become numb and lost our astonishment and our amazement at the crucifixion. Because here is what no other religion teaches. Christianity alone teaches that God became man and then was crucified. He died on a cross. God hung on a cross. God was crucified. This morning, we're going to look at three ways, maybe only two ways, in which the New Testament takes crucifixion and applies it to our life. How should we live in light of the crucifixion? How should the crucifixion shape our life? The first is this. The crucifixion serves as a picture, teaching us what it means to be a disciple or a follower of Jesus. After Pilate was finished interviewing Jesus, he had him scourged and flogged. And like Dave said last week, it would have been done with something called the cat of nine tails. Where it would have been a, a, a pole with nine strips of leather coming out from the pole. And at the end of each piece of leather was either a piece of metal or a bone. And that would have been used to scourge and flog a person being prepared for crucifixion. Sometimes the flogging and the scourging was so violent that a person died before they ever got to the cross. After Jesus was scourged and flogged, he then had a crown of thorns shoved into his head. And then a horizontal beam, the horizontal part of the cross, would be tied to the back of his shredded shoulders, and he was forced to carry that through the city of Jerusalem on the way to Golgotha, where he would eventually die. But he was so weakened by the flogging and the scourging and the crown of thorns and the blood loss that he could not make it all the way to, Gol to Golgotha. Mark 15, 21. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. Simon is from North Africa. That is where uh, Cyrene is located. And he was standing there watching the criminals walking by to be crucified. And because Jesus was in such a weakened condition that he couldn't carry the cross, they forced Simon out of the crowd and tied that horizontal beam onto his shoulders and made him walk to Golgotha. Now, if you had been there that day, you would have seen this man unprepared and unaware of what was going to happen, carrying the cross of Jesus, not even exactly sure who Jesus was, but here Jesus is trailing after him on the way to the hill. Early in the Gospel of Mark, earlier, before Jesus had ever reached Jerusalem, he told his disciples that following him would involve them taking up their own cross. Watch this, Mark chapter 8. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. So this is Jesus telling him that the crucifixion is coming ahead of him. Then he called the crowd to him along with the disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. So you see what he's saying? He's saying, I'm headed to the cross. I'm headed to the crucifixion. 
And if you want to be my disciple, and all that means is my follower, if you want to follow me, if you believe in me, then what you're supposed to do is take up your cross and go be crucified along with me. About 100 years ago, a man named Ernest Shackleton put forth a challenge to his countrymen in what he called the last great adventure. See, Shackleton wanted to be the first person to ever cross the Antarctica, that continent, on foot. And so he wanted to recruit a team to go with him. He wrote up a little flyer, posted the flyer, and within a few days had over 5,000 men applying to be a part of this team. Here's what the flyer said. Men wanted for hazardous journey. Low wages, bitter cold, long hours of complete darkness. Safe return, doubtful. Honor and recognition in case of success. That's the kind of call, the blunt, in-your-face, truthful, challenging call that Jesus issued when he told us that if we wanted to follow him, we should take up our cross. Jesus doesn't offer some kind of big church TV preacher soft call about how Jesus is going to make your dreams come true. He doesn't tell us some kind of false truth that somehow he's going to make us healthy and wealthy and wise. And he's going to give us the good life and the life we always wanted. And Jesus doesn't say anything like that. No, he says, take up your cross and follow me. And go to the Mount of Crucifixion just like I'm going. Several years ago, there was a movie called Dead Man Walking. It was about a nun who was working with a man on death row. Pretty good movie. But for now, just the title captures what a disciple is. Dead man walking. To be a disciple, to be a follower of Jesus, to take up your cross and to die to yourself. Paul expresses the attitude that every Christian should have in Galatians 2.20. Here's how we should think of our lives. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. See, what Paul's saying is that we're all a little bit like Simon of Cyrene who took the cross of Christ and was walking on the way to Golgotha. That in that picture, there was a little metaphor of what it means to be a disciple of Christ. We got a glimpse of someone carrying their cross just like you and I are called to carry our cross to count ourselves dead because we've been crucified with Christ. We no longer live, but Christ lives in us. Now, if we had that perspective, think about how it would change every area of our life. Think just in your relationships. Relationships at work or at home with wife or kids or husband or dad or mom or friends or in your school or on your team or in your work environment. Think about how it would change if you thought, I don't have rights. I'm dead to my rights. I'm dead to my rights. I'm not demanding things. I'm not demanding that people cater to me. I'm dead. I've been crucified with Christ. Christ lives in me. Oh. 
That's a radical transformation of how you would interact with every other person, every other environment you, in, you ever walked in. Or think about this. If you thought, I'm dead to my comfort. I've been crucified with Christ. I'm not about seeking my comfort. I'm not trying to make people and circumstances and stuff make me more comfortable here in this world. I'm dead. I'm not living for my comfort. I'm living for Christ's glory because he lives in me. Or I'm dead to my agenda. I'm not trying to make things work out in this world the way I want them to. I'm not trying to get my dream life. I'm not trying to set my life up to go the way it wanted. I don't want my will anymore because I'm dead. I've been crucified with Christ. I'm Simon on the, with the cross on the road to Golgotha. I'm dead to my agenda. But now I want Christ's will, God's will in my life. Whatever that is, that's what I want. Do you see how counting yourselves as having been crucified with Christ changes everything about you? I'm dead to the approval of others. I'm not trying to live a life in which other people approve of me and my choices. They're not going to get it. Because I'm dead. I'm crucified with Christ. I'm living for God's approval. I'm living for an audience of one, not an audience of my peers. That changes everything. But I don't want to leave this image of Simon carrying the cross quite yet. Because I think there's more here. See, evidently, Simon took his boys, Alexander and Rufus, on a little father-son retreat. We find that they'd come in from the country and were coming to Jerusalem for the Passover. Imagine what it was like to go home. And the mom say, hey, how was the trip? Wow, have we got a story to tell you. Dad carried the cross of this guy named Jesus. Now we know, and Dave showed us last week, we know from Romans 16 that Rufus and Rufus's mom, who wasn't on this trip but heard about the story, and maybe Alexander, we're not 100% sure, all became believers. This whole family, Simon and his wife and Rufus and Alexander, all came to faith in Christ and were involved in the church at Rome. So now I just want you to to think about this for just a moment. I wonder what kind of impact it had on his boys who became believers. I wonder what kind of impact it had on them to see their dad carrying the cross. Or we might say it this way. I wonder what kind of impact it would have on kids in our families if they saw their dad taking discipleship seriously. Taking following Jesus seriously. It is impossible to underestimate. I think I said that wrong. It is impossible to overestimate the, the impact a father has in his family. No matter how much you say it's more. No matter how much you think it's more. Here's a father who picked up his cross and followed Jesus and his sons believed. Just think for a second. Just think of your experience. I'm not saying this is good or bad. I'm just saying this is the experience most of us have seen. We're all familiar, because maybe you're one of them. We're all familiar with a mom who wants to come to church and wants to help her family love Jesus. And maybe a husband who's disinterested. Maybe he shows up on a Sunday, maybe not. Maybe he refuses to come. 
but he's not near as interested as mom is. No, mom's trying to get the kids ready, trying to get the kids motivated, and the kids may go with it when they're younger, but as they get older, at least what I've seen is not all kids, not every situation, but a lot of kids start going, yeah, I don't want to go anymore. Dad's not going. Dad's not into this. I'm out too. And eventually mom, as much as she's prayed and as much as she's tried, she just can't keep it together. Can't keep everybody going on the same road. Now, this isn't a criticism of those women. Uh, They have my undying respect and gratitude. And we try as a church, all of us as a church, try to rally around and help those women at every point. But what it is saying is that for some reason, God has invested dads with an influence in their family, a spiritual influence. Because rarely, maybe never, maybe rarely, Do we see a dad in the same situation where mom's not interested, mom's not coming, mom's refusing, but the dad's the one who's putting all the energy and trying to get the kids, not just to come to church, but to be involved and to want to be there. It seems that, my experience, maybe I'm missing something, but, but it seems like that usually what happens is that when a dad believes and wants to follow Jesus, mom comes on board and kids come on board in a way they just don't when he isn't interested. The bottom line is this, God has invested fathers with incredible spiritual influence in their families. And from one dad to another, if you waste that influence, if you fritter it away, you will regret it. I got a letter uh, a couple weeks ago from a dad who's just sharing the story of his family. It's an email, and I, I, I asked his permission to share it with you. I'm not going to uh, name any names. No need to embarrass anyone. But, but here's how it goes. It says, Keith, our family, and then he defines his family in parentheses. My wife, my stepkids, and I came to the family Christmas event. It was for kids a little younger than ours in the 11 to 13 range, but we enjoyed it nonetheless. As a result of the book and devotional that they gave out at the family Christmas event, we have been transformed as a family. When we started the crossing in June of 2011, it was a fight every Sunday with our 13-year-old to get her to come to church at all. She would just sit with us and pretend to listen or even sleep, I think, a few times, honestly. I think she only slept when I was preaching. Not sure, but I think. So this continued until this December. Since the beginning of doing the devotional at home and having a conversation with God every day as a part of our family, things have changed dramatically and in a hurry. Our teenager has decided to go to her class on Sundays and during this past Monday night's devotional asked if she could be the one who led the prayer. I am so thankful that Jesus and the church have finally made it into her heart. All this being said, I want to continue and hold their attention to Jesus. I've looked at family devotionals. I've come up with a makeshift plan to read our Bible as a family in this new year. And then he goes on and he asks for help. What do I do? What's the next step? This is just a regular guy. He's not on staff at a church. He's not a pastor. He's just a regular guy like you who's trying to take the initiative to follow Christ, trying to 
find anything. Find a Christmas devotional that's for elementary kids and do it with his teenagers. He's trying to find anything to have a conversation with his kids. And what God uses to change a teenager's heart is a dad who cares enough to have a spiritual conversation. A dad who cares enough to walk with God himself. That's what God uses. Not some great sermon, not some lesson by the student ministry person, not some cool college student, a dad who cared enough. A dad who wants to follow Jesus. That's what God used in this teenager's heart. And I think that's what God would want to use in a lot of kids' hearts. So many dads are afraid because we don't have anything profound to say. You know, I just saw any conversation I've had with my kids on any topic, I've never heard them say, well, Dad, now that you put it that way, that is so enlightening. Now I want to follow Jesus my whole life. (laughs) Never have my kids said that to me. Sometimes they grunt. Sometimes they nod. Sometimes they look at me like I'm crazy. Sometimes they go, yeah, good point. It's just those little moments of a dad wanting to follow Jesus that make a tremendous eternal impact. It's not something for moms to be left with. It's something for dads to be invested in along with the moms. So the crucifixion, we're told, gives us a picture of what it means to be a disciple of Christ. Well, the crucifixion also, we're told, is a sign of God's love for us. A sign of God's love for us. It's everywhere in the New Testament. 1 John 4.10 This is love. Not that we loved God, but he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So here, the cross is the very definition of love. You've heard of love as being sacrificial. Well, that, finds, that definition is rooted in the cross where God sacrificed his son. This is love. Or how about Romans 5.8? But God demonstrates, God manifests, God shows, God reveals, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It is always dangerous to decide or determine God's love based on the circumstances of your life. And yet you hear people do it all the time, right? I know I've done it. Hey, we just had a good vacation. Isn't God good? Hey, I heard Aunt Margie is, is feeling better from her sickness. Isn't God good? Look at all the ways God's been good to us, and we recount the blessings that we have. And I don't want to minimize that. Any good thing in our life is a sign of God's goodness for us. But what do you do when things go south? When Aunt Margie's cancer gets worse? What do you do when you lose your job or in the car wreck? What do you do when a kid wanders off the wrong direction and doesn't look like they're coming back? What do you do when things aren't going well? What do you look to then? Well, the Bible never comes and says, oh, just cheer up. God's for you. God loves you. No, instead, it takes the focus off of us and puts it on the cross. The Bible points to the cross and says, if you want to know how much God loves you, look no further than the crucifixion of Jesus. When Paul wants us to be sure and confident of God's love, he takes our focus off of ourselves and off of our feelings and off of our experiences and off of our circumstances and focuses our attention on the cross. 
There God demonstrates his love for us. Paul takes it a little further in Romans 8.32. He said, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him freely give us all things? God did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. What that means is, God sent his son to the cross where he was crucified. And if God is crucifying his son for sinners like you and me, is there anything that he won't give us? Is there anything we need that he won't give to us? He gave you his son. What more could he give? There's a story I read about a famine in in Germany. It was a severe famine in which people were starving to death. People were turning to cannibalism. People were desperate. And one family had four children, six total. The oldest was a, um, a boy. And, and one day they had an offer from someone. This guy was willing to give them food in exchange for their oldest son. And after talking about it and after much tears, they decided they had no choice. And so they made the deal. And they gave him the son for the food that might last them for quite a while. But as they saw their son leaving down the lane with this man, they said, forget it. No. And they chased him down and they gave him his food back and said, we're not giving you our son. We'd rather die together than spare our son. But don't you see, that's what God did for us. He gave his son, not for noble people, but for sinners like you and me. Our heart breaks when any child suffers, especially one of our own. And yet God sent his son to suffer for us, to suffer in our place, to suffer what we deserved. God gave you his son. What more could he possibly give you? You might have heard of an author named Brennan Manning. He's written several popular books. He died a few years ago. Brennan was not his given name. See, this guy, he grew up in New York with a friend named Ray. They went to high school together, bought cars together, double dated together, enlisted in Vietnam together. Uh, ended up fighting in the same unit together. One night they were sitting in their foxhole eating chocolate bars, talking about their old times in New York when a grenade landed in the foxhole. Ray uh, dropped his chocolate bar, smiled at his buddy, and dove on the grenade. It killed him, but it spared his friend. When this guy eventually decided he wanted to become a Catholic priest, he, he was told he needed to take the name of a saint. And he decided to take the last name of his best buddy that died for him, Ray Brennan. He took that name Brennan and became Brennan Manning. Years later, he was talking with Ray's mom in New York. And one night, he said, do you think Ray loved me? And his mom got up in his face. Ray's mom got up in Brennan's face and said, after what he did for you, how could you doubt that he ever loved you? And Brendan Manning said at that moment he had kind of an epiphany. Because he struggled with whether God loved him. And he could hear God saying, after what I gave you, after I gave you my son, how could you ever doubt that I love you? 
But we do, don't we? There are people here this morning, people right now, who doubt God's love, who doubt His concern, who are struggling to trust God with something in their life. It could be finances, it could be health, it could be marriage, it could be a career decision, it could be loneliness or depression. We're wondering, has God forgotten about us? Does God care? Does God want what's best for me? And I think... If God could be here with you and said, I gave you my own son, what more could I do to show you how much I love you? Whenever you doubt God's love, we must always take the focus off of ourselves and put it right where God told us to, at the cross. We need to take communion today because whenever we talk about the cross, it draws our heart to want to take communion. Because we need to anchor our soul, not in our feelings and experiences and circumstances, but we need to anchor our soul right here at the cross. And that's what communion is, is a symbol, is a means of grace directing our hearts back to what Jesus did when he was crucified. What I want you to think about this morning as you come is that what else could God do to show you? What more would you want God to do to show you how much He loves you? What more would you want God to do to show you how much He cares for you? Trust Him. Put your hope in Him. In just a few moments, I'm going to invite you to come up front and take communion with us. Something tells me on an icy Sunday morning, we don't have many visitors, but maybe we do have some. So let me tell you how we do it at the crossing. Just whenever you're ready, you walk up and you grab a piece of bread, you dip it into the wine that's in our hand or the juice that's in the stool on the stool in front of us. You don't need to say anything, although we will say a word of encouragement to you. The Baskets up here with the white cloths are meant for uh, what we call our mercy offering. Any money put in those baskets during communion, it goes to help people in our church and our community with physical and financial needs. We find it very biblical to think of the poor when we think about how Jesus came for us when we were poor. On the night before Jesus was crucified, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body. Take and eat. And he poured some wine into a cup and said, this is my blood. Pour it out for your sins. This table is for any who believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior. We come today saying that we are sick We are helpless. We don't come with our own righteousness. We don't come boasting in our goodness. We come saying we are desperate sinners in need of Savior. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we take communions, you would open our eyes and open our heart to see the great love of Christ to see the great love that Christ had when He went to the cross. 
And that each of us would be transformed by the confidence that knowing that God is for us. Father, I pray for all of us who struggle this morning, wondering whether you can be trusted. And I pray that as we come to the cross this morning, that we would leave with the sense of peace that our life is in your hands, that you know and you care. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.